Genesis 24. That's where we're going today. We're continuing our exegesis of the book of Genesis. We have thus far made our way up through chapter 23. So today we will be in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. While you're turning there, let me make a few preliminary remarks. First off, if you're trying to uh, see how far we're going to be going, typically I try to get through about a chapter each time, but you'll notice this chapter is 67 verses long. Yep, 67 verses. So we should be finished up around 3 o'clock this afternoon, something like that. Just kidding. Did you feel a little panic inside when I said that? My wife probably did. He's got to be kidding. We're probably not going to get through that. I'm hoping we can get through the first 10 verses. Chapter 23 was uh, one of the shortest chapters in the entire book of Genesis. Chapter 24 is the longest by a long way. We're not going to get through the, the entire thing today. There's just too much there. Second thing, though, that we need to talk about before we get into this is the, youth, the use of euphemisms in Scripture. Ooh, that's a big word. Euphemisms. What are euphemisms? You utilize euphemisms all the time. I just did it there. You utilize euphemisms all the time. You utilize these. What, what are euphemisms? And the reason they're important, by the way, is because you are going to encounter some very important euphemisms in the Scripture. And we're going to encounter one today. And if you don't understand what they are, you can misread the Scripture. You can misunderstand what it is and what it's saying. A euphemism is when we use a milder term or phrase in place of one that might come across as overly harsh or offensive. Uh, we're replacing something that's really stark and kind of shocking uh, so as not to be rude or crass, right? So we use a metaphor instead. We do this a lot. For example... Um, when someone dies, if you were going to tell their loved one, you know, that, hey, your brother just died, that might be a little too stark, a little too shocking. And so instead, you'll, you'll soften it up a little bit. You're hoping to soften the blow a little bit, right? And you'll say, I'm sorry, but your brother's passed away. Why do you say that? Because it's a little, it's a bit, a way of kind of softening that down. It's a common technique, by the way, throughout human history in all languages. We do it today. Jesus did it. Uh, the book of Genesis does it too. And so I want to give you a few examples to illustrate what I'm talking about. Not just the pass away thing, by the way, but let's look at some of the examples in Scripture. Uh, when Lazarus has died, Jesus tells the disciples what? Lazarus is asleep. We've got to go down there and see him because he's sleeping. But he actually wasn't sleeping, was he? He wasn't actually sleeping. He was dead. But Jesus was saying Lazarus was sleeping even though he meant Lazarus is dead. He was using a euphemism. You use them a lot. I do as well. Genesis 29, 16 through 17, there's another one. It's maybe my favorite one in the entire book, in the entire book of Genesis. There's a euphemism about Leah and Rachel. Here's what it says. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Like, what? Why? What, what do her weak eyes have to do with her looks, right? Why are her weak eyes, why are Leah's weak eyes being contrasted with Rachel's beauty? That doesn't make sense, right? It's as if the Bible's saying, hey, what she needs is some corrective lenses. Man, if she just had the right contacts, you know, this girl would be set. Some bifocals, right? She'd be ready. No, that's not what it's saying. The book of Genesis is actually saying, when, when it says that Leah has weak eyes, that's a euphemism. It's saying she's ugly, okay? She's hard to look at, <laughs> okay? 
It's a metaphorical way of saying she's not pretty. But it's kind of stark and crass and rude to just say, hey, she's ugly. And so you use a euphemism, right? She had weak eyes. I can see that now being used in our congregation. <laughs> I met this new girl. What's she like? She's got weak eyes, man. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> Look for bifocals. So... That's a euphemism. Here's the problem with euphemisms, though. The problem with euphemisms, though, is that they can sometimes lead to misunderstandings if the people you're talking to don't catch it. And that does happen. It happened in the Scriptures. It happened with Jesus. It happened when Jesus was talking about Lazarus, right? Which is in John chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. Here's what it says. It says, After that, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was talking about taking rest and sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I love that, right? Hey, Lazarus is asleep. We're going so I can wake him up. Oh, man, he's going to get better then. Okay, you're thick. He's dead. Okay, I'm going down there so I'll raise him from the dead. Okay, why didn't you just say so, right? Well, he did. He just didn't catch it. But we will see a euphemism in this chapter, and you'll see why. Um, Euphemisms have a proper place. There are other places in not just Genesis, by the way, but in 1 and 2 Samuel, other places in historical books. For example, there's a place where um, Saul is chasing after David, and David's on the run from Saul. And the Bible says Saul went into the cave to relieve himself, and he uncovered his foot. That's not what he's, he did. He didn't go into the cave to relieve himself and, like, take his sandal off. Right? That's a, that's a euphemistic way of saying he's naked because he's going to the bathroom. He uncovered himself. Right? So euphemisms have a proper place. And they have a proper place in Scripture, but they can also engender misunderstanding on our part if we don't catch them as we read the text. And there is one in this text, and we're going to talk about that today. And it's... Awkward, and I was up very late figuring out how to say this without being too crass. So, there is a very important euphemism. When we read euphemisms, we have to understand the message being conveyed through it. So, without further ado, let's pray and let's get into this passage. Lord, I thank you for your people. They're your bride and they're a blessing. God, be with me as I explain and teach your word today that it might be good for your people, that it might build up your people. Please bless the reading, the preaching, the teaching of your word. Open our minds to understand. Be with me as I teach. Let the ministry of your word be faithful to you and edifying to your people, that it might bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. How old was Abraham? Well, if you do the math, which I did this week, you'll find he's about 140. That is old and advanced in age, okay? Some of y'all in here that are in your 80s, you're whippersnappers compared to him, right? It's 140. Very advanced in age. He was not out running the 100-meter dash, okay? No longer is he tramping through the woods with a spear or bow and arrow. By the way, Isaac, for his part, is about 40 by this time. So obviously, by this point, he's none too young to be finding a bride. 40 years old? Hey, it's time to get married. 
Verse 2, so Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh. That is a euphemism. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. It was that big of a deal to him. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, perhaps this woman will not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? In other words, he's saying, hey, look, if I get there and I find this woman to marry Isaac, but she says, hey, I don't want to make the journey, which, by the way, was about 500 miles. There are no interstates. There's no air conditioned, you know, pickup or car to drive in. Right. You can't just take the subway. You can't take the Greyhound. It's a long journey. What if she says she doesn't want to come back? Should I come back and get Isaac and take him to her? And Abraham says, no way, no how. And there's a reason he's saying that. Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. Not an angel. He will send his angel before you. And you'll take a wife for my son from there. That's a lot of confidence, isn't it? How could he have such confidence? Because he knew who was going before him. He will send Christ before you. And he's going to make your journey prosperous. Stop worrying about whether you can find one or not. You're going to find one. Why are you going to find one? Because God is the one who's doing the work. It's incredible to me to see the faith of Abraham. You see the faith of Abraham ten chapters before. You see the faith of Abraham here. It's not the same. This is a man who has matured in his faith. He has ultimate trust in God. He has ultimate trust in the providence, in the sovereignty of this almighty God. He'll send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. I want you to notice something about verse 8. That implies an incredible level of trust in this man. Because all the guy has to do is get halfway there and go, I do not want to do this anymore. I'll just tell him I met some girl. She wouldn't come with me. It's all good. (laughs) No, there's nobody to check. There's no GPS to track where he went, right? He ain't got, you know, life lock or whatever. Nobody's checking where he's at or what he's doing. It's just all on him, all on his integrity, which says something about him. We're going to get into that. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then he took ten of his master's camels and departed. That is a big train. Ten of his master's camels and departed. For all his master's goods were in his hand. That's good enough. You might want to underline it. For all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. There's so much to be mined out of this little passage. And I promise you, I'm not going to be able to do it total justice. But we're going to try to unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Because there is a lot going on here. Who is this oldest servant of Abraham's house? Almost certainly that would have been Eliezer. 
Why is that a big deal? Who cares? Eliezer, remember, back in chapter 15, verse 24, we heard about Eliezer. Abram, this is before God had changed his name. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Okay, Eliezer was the heir at this point. Was that a big deal in this culture? You darn right it was. It was a huge deal. But the word of the Lord came to Abram saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Here's why that's a big deal. Eliezer is his most trusted servant. That was 54 years ago, by the way, at this point. And Eliezer is his most trusted servant. Eliezer is one that he trusts implicitly. And Eliezer was the one who got, if you will, the inheritance robbed. If there's anybody in this entire camp that could have been bitter, that could have been out of step with God over this whole deal, it would have been Eliezer. Eliezer knew when Isaac came along, well, even when Ishmael came along, hey, I'm, I'm done. I'm cut out of the inheritance. You know what he could have done, like a lot of people? I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to make an own name for myself. I'm not staying around here. But he didn't. Not only did he not run, he put his neck on the line for Abram. He put his life on the line for at least once. It says a lot about his character, and we're going to get into that. In Hebrew, Eliezer means God is my helper or God is my help. In fact, Moses named one of his children Eliezer because he said God had been his helper in escaping the sword of Pharaoh. God is my helper. So Eliezer, whose name means God is my helper, is about to be sent out by Abraham to fetch a bride for his son. Hard to miss the typology, isn't it? Is there some foreshadowing? Isaac is a type and shadow of Christ. It's easy to draw parallels. We see the, the father sending out his trusted servant to fetch a bride for his beloved son. Yeah, there's some typology there. And notice that when the servant does find that bride that God intends, he brings the bride to the son. He doesn't take the son to the bride. Why? Because the son was where he was supposed to be. The bride wasn't. He doesn't need to bring the son to the bride. The son's in the promised land. The son's right where he's supposed to be. And by the way, Isaac never left the promised land. Of all the patriarchs, he may have been the only one. Never. He never went outside of the promised land. And Abraham said the same thing. Don't take him out of here. This is the land God promised us. You keep him here. Yes, there are parallels aplenty. But I also want you to notice something about Eliezer that gets missed. And that's the stalwart honor, character, and loyalty of this man. Eliezer was the heir before Ishmael and Isaac came along 54 years ago at this point. You think he ever struggled with that? And I don't know. I was thinking about it this week. I wonder if he ever struggled with that. You know, I wonder as he's growing up, remember, he's born in Abram's house. As he's growing up, he's thinking, man, I'm the heir of this whole place. And someday all of this is going to be mine. His, his, obviously, his mom must have been telling that because Abram's saying that. Hey, son, one day you're going to grow up. Remember, these guys are old and they're childless. This is all going to be yours. And what happens? Think you ever struggled with that? 
See, he could have gotten really bitter. And you know what would have happened if he'd have let that bitterness fester? He'd have given up on what... He is in Scripture today because he did not. He would have abandoned it. I wonder if he ever struggled with bitterness. I I don't know. I, I think it would be pretty natural if he did. And yet somehow it's obvious to me, it's evident the Lord has done a work of grace in Eliezer's heart because there is no trace of bitterness in him. There's no trace of selfishness. He is literally giving his all for these other two men. That says something to me. There's only love and faithfulness in him. And remember, the verse tells us Eliezer was ruling over all that Abram had. Everything that Abraham had was being ruled over by who? Isaac? That's his son who's 40 years old by this time. Don't you think he's old enough to know how the family business runs? No, Eliezer. Why? Well, think about this. Just just use a little logic here. Eliezer would have been older, obviously, than Isaac. Quite a bit. Right? Probably in his 60s by now, maybe even a little bit older. He's wiser. But remember... Before Ishmael and Isaac came along, he was the heir. He was being mentored by Abraham. These two were very close. This is not like he's just another employee. These two were very close. Abraham was probably something like a father figure to him. He was a mentor to him. That's how he knew how to run the whole place. Abraham's showing him as he's growing up. And after Isaac and Ishmael is born... Obviously, if he's the head of this whole place, he's going to shoulder some of the responsibility of raising Isaac. You may not have thought about this, but, you know, as Isaac is 15 years old and Abraham is 115, Abraham's probably not out there showing him how to field dress game, right? I mean, you know, he's probably not tramping through the woods, but some of that stuff probably fell on Eliezer. And Eliezer has a deep love for Isaac. Have you ever been in a mentorship you ever had a mentorship relationship? Let me tell you what happens when you do. Your heart will be knit to those young men or young women that you're mentoring. You will strive to see them go beyond where you are, what you're doing. You want to see them succeed. You're happy when they succeed. When they do greater things than you do, you're excited about that. You're not jealous. I think that's where Eliezer is. I think that's the way that he views Isaac. He wants this to succeed. He's tied up in seeing it succeed. He has vested himself in this young man. Have you? Have you vested yourself in some young men or some young women? Remember back in chapter 14 where Abraham's men went to war against Kedor Leomer? Greatest military man at that portion of the earth up to that time. He had an army and three others that he was in alliance with, right? Remember that? Four kings. And Abraham realizes they had taken Lot. Remember that? It's back in chapter 14. They'd taken Lot. Lot had just done Abraham dirty. Remember that? Abraham, hey, Abraham says to Lot, look, Lot... Hey, wherever you go, you're too numerous. I'm too numerous. We don't have enough land here to support both of us. You go wherever you'd like. Lot should have said, no, you're the elder. You're the one that's, 
taking care of me. I've grown up. You're like a father to me. You choose where you go. I'll take the other. And instead, Abraham says, no, Lot, you choose what you like. And, of course, Lot takes the best of the land that's down in the, in the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was well-watered land. And basically gives Abraham the shaft. And not long after, he gets captured in battle and he's taken away. And what does Abraham do? I think Eliezer must have learned something from this. I would have. Abraham comes back and says, hey, you remember that bratty little, you know, nephew of mine? I'm sure he didn't say that. He just got captured. By who? Kedileomer and uh, three other armies. Ooh, that's bad. Yep, it is. We're going to go fight and get him back. Say what? You may notice we ain't, uh, we, we ain't all trained military men. Doesn't matter. We're going. Grab your sword. Strap it up. 318 men. That probably looked like a suicide mission. Eliezer would have been there. He's going. He's willing to follow Abraham to the brink. I don't think it's because he just believes in Abraham. I think it's because he believes in Abraham's God. And that's what we'll see in the rest of this chapter. The whole time as he's on this, he is asking God, God, you make my way prosperous. You do it for me. You're the one that's in control. And that is what changed him into such a man. His most trusted protege. The right-hand man of Abraham. I'll be honest with you, I think Eliezer represents something of an overlooked hero of the faith. We see him interceding on behalf of Abraham and Isaac. We see his heart is fully vested in the success of his mission to find Isaac a suitable bride. It seems obvious to me that Eliezer has a deep, strong, unshakable faith in the Lord and a genuine love for Abraham and Isaac. Let's be honest, what kind of guy must he have been for Abraham to task him with such an incredibly important mission? Have you thought about this? You know what's riding on this thing? What's riding on this mission? The entire covenant. The future of all of Abraham's progeny is riding on this mission. Remember, his wife has died. They have never seen a grandchild. Abraham is now old and well advanced in years, and Isaac's not even married. And Abraham looks around and says, These Canaanites, this culture is just degraded. It's disgusting. Do not let him marry one of the girls from around here. What's riding on this? Everything is. All of Abraham's future grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all of them are riding on this. Whether his faith, the faith of Abraham and Isaac, will be passed down to future generations is riding on this. In short, the covenant is riding on this. This is a grave decision. You don't flippantly give this to just anybody. No pressure, Eliezer. And no pressure, buddy, but everything's riding on this. The entire future of us, our family, and the covenant is riding on this. I'm putting it on you. No pressure. To underscore just how important it is, Abraham tells him, put your hand under my thigh and swear an oath. And that's where we find our euphemism. When the Bible says that Abraham had his servant put his hand under his thigh, it's not what you're thinking. He is not saying, this is kind of how we think of it in our mind. We think of Abraham sitting down. And Eliezer's sitting beside him, and Abraham saying, hey, put your hand on my thigh. Okay, hey, I swear this oath. That's not what happened. They were not likely sitting. Thigh is euphemistic. He is not asking him to put his hand under his leg muscles. Thigh is a euphemism for the loins. 
He's saying, grab a hold of me by the loins and swear to me. Yeah, yeah, it's getting serious. Swear to me by this. Got it? He's saying, you put your hand under the part of my body that bears the sign of the covenant. Because that's what this is about. It's about the covenant. It's about the future. I probably don't have to say this, but if you're a man, you're not going to be real comfortable with another man holding you by that part of your body. And I probably don't have to say this, but if your reproductive organs are laying in another man's hands, you are totally vulnerable to him. And that's exactly what Abraham is telling Eliezer. Buddy, my future, the future of this covenant, the future of my progeny, my future children, grandchildren, the whole gamut is in your hands, literally. It's serious business. Eliezer has no doubt been tasked with many important duties throughout all of his years of faithful service to Abraham, and yet none of them are bigger than this one. None. This is by far the most important task Abraham has ever set him out to, and thus the oath. That kind of seriousness about the selection of a suitable mate for his son ought to be a witness against us. You know why? Because that's the proper kind of seriousness. And we don't act that way anymore. Abraham really is here showing us how serious we should all take that. That's how serious we should all be telling our children that decision is. How serious is it that you are married to a suitable bride or a suitable husband? It's that serious. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in all of your life other than Christ. Period. Nothing else is even close. Who you marry is far more important than where you go to college. It's far more important than what you major in. It's far more important than what career you choose, what house you live in, what town you live in. And the truth is, in the evangelical world, we don't take it seriously. We don't. Don't lie to me and tell me we do. We do not. There are people, there are certain individuals who do, and you know what happens? Because they take it so seriously, all the, all the rest of the evangelical world points fingers at them and laughs. They're the ones doing it right. It's the proper kind of seriousness. We don't take our godly family heritage seriously. We don't take our spiritual heritage seriously. You know what we take seriously? Sports. Recreation. Video games. We'll spend thousands of dollars and thousands and thousands of hours on that as parents and neglect to give our children the skills that will make them prepared for marriage. And that marriage is much more important than any of the rest of it. Much more important than whether they can have 200 yards a game running a football or hit 40 home runs a year. We don't take it seriously. Don't lie to me. I've got 20 years of ministry experience that says otherwise. We do not take it seriously, not as a whole. I know a lot of folks that take their church credentials seriously. That's a big deal in the SBC world. My granddaddy was a deacon at this church, and so was my daddy. We've been here for three generations. So what? There's a big difference between your denominational credentials and your spiritual heritage. Don't confuse the two. One's about looking good. 
And one's about the faithfulness to the Lord. One is a Pharisaical whitewash. And one's about multi-generational discipleship. Do not confuse them. The truth is, at least for the majority of folks in the evangelical world or in the SBC churches, everything else is more important than discipleship. And that's why we're on the decline. And that's why the church in America looks the way it does. We will allow the world to disciple our children just so long as we get to play sports. We'll put thousands of dollars and thousands of hours into everything else. We'll drag them around to practice after practice, game after game, year-round. question is, do we spend the same time, money, and effort making sure they know the Scriptures? Do we spend the same time, money, and effort making sure they have the skills necessary for a successful marriage? <clears throat> because we should. I know it's pretty tense in here right now as I'm saying this. I'm speaking to me. I know what this fight is like in my own heart. How many young women do you think actually have the skills to be a good homemaker? Why not? Well, they just don't learn it in school. Oh. So it's the school's job to disciple your kid then. Well, yeah, that's where they're going to go to get their skills, is it? Is that where they're going to go get their skills? If you'd like to know what the skill set is of the average high school graduate, more than happy to tell you. Ask me or Justin. We see it every day. Why isn't it important? The Scripture literally tells us that they should do that. And yet we don't equip them to. Then we get mad that they don't. But we've never equipped them to. It's not their fault. Listen, I'm not trying to be rude, but when you've got a 16 or 17 or 18-year-old girl and she knows nothing about homemaking, that's kind of on us. It's kind of on mom and dad, isn't it? How about our boys? Are our sons equipped to be good providers, to be good protectors, to be the pastors of their home one day? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be equipping them to do. Are we? Or do we just let them do what the rest of the pathetic passive, effeminate culture does, and then drag them to church and hope for the best. That's not discipleship. That's not preparing them for the most important decision they'll make other than Jesus Christ. We're failing them. And I'll be honest with you, part of the reason this is on my mind is because, maybe I shouldn't trot this out. I feel like we've done that here. I feel like we have let our high school and college-aged young adults kind of slip through the cracks. And we expect them to pick everything up. We expect them to be discipled. And don't get me wrong, they get good stuff when they're here, if they're here. But we could be doing more, and I think we should be doing more. I don't know what that looks like. I'm still trying to wrestle through that too. Let me ask you some rhetorical questions. How many of our young men do you think are able to be competent providers within two years of graduating high school? How about four years? How about ten years? How many of them can change a flat tire? And that's been an eye-opener to me. How many of them can change oil in a car? How many of them are able to physically protect 
a wife or kids if it really were necessary. See, we don't care about that. You know why? Because we want to be able to be just as limperist and effeminate as the rest of the culture and not have to answer for it. Well, Jesus was gentle. Yeah, and he also um, threw over tables and ran people out of the temple with a whip. So um, please stop trying to portray Jesus as a bearded woman. He was not. We've been content, by and large, to raise a generation of spineless males and try to excuse it by saying Jesus was gentle too, and it's nonsense. And I won't stand for it, and I won't pretend that I do. And don't even get me started on how many of our young men and young women can actually know enough scripture, theology, or church history to teach it to others. Listen, that's the whole reason that we're teaching them, so they can teach others. And not just your children. Listen, the way you teach and disciple your children is how your grandchildren are going to be discipled. Have you thought about that? But not just that. How about the other people that they run into in the course of their daily lives? You see what I'm saying here? Everything else is more important. We're not preparing them for marriage. We're not preparing them for parenthood or adult life. Because the truth is we simply don't value our children the way we should. We don't value our legacies the way we should. We don't value our spiritual heritage like we should. Abraham did, though. He knew it was the top priority. And that's why he gave it so much seriousness. Notice what Abraham's major concern is. Look at verse 3. I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. It is of ultimate importance to Abraham that his son not get entangled with a Canaanite girl. Why? He knows the Canaanites are ungodly. He knows this is a culture destined for judgment. He knows a Canaanite girl is not going to teach his grandchildren the ways of the Lord. He knows a Canaanite girl is not going to be equally yoked with Isaac. And it's a big deal to him. It's a big enough deal he's willing to give his top servant this massive oath and send him on a 500 mile journey with camels get a girl bring her back dude there's girls lots closer than that not the right kind that says something about the value of a godly man or a godly woman a godly spouse is worthy of abraham saying i want you to cross basically heaven and earth 500 miles on camel get this girl come back Take whatever you need. Remember it says all of his goods were in his hands. Take whatever you need. You need everything I have. You need all the money I've got. Take whatever you need and get the right girl. Will we do that? I feel like we'll do it the other way around. We kind of just hope for the best. It's not a good action plan. In the words of my brother, hope is not an action plan. The culture we live in today is every bit as ungodly and under judgment as the Canaanite culture of Abraham's day. Let's not play around about it. I mean, every sin that Sodom was judged for is celebrated in America. Our culture is absolutely depraved. And any young man or woman who's been molded by this culture rather than God's word is not an eligible candidate for a suitor for your son or daughter. Period. You must teach them that. Dads, I'm one of your number, and so I'm going to come right after you because I'm coming after me. And I know this will be really easy for me to preach because my kids are six and under. 
And you may have to come along and tell me when they get to 16, you said this, keep it. And the thing that I appreciate about the church that I'm in is that I have men who are willing to do that. That is to say, I have men here who are men. I know it's Father's Day and I'm doing this all wrong. I'm coming after you, but so be it. The truth is, dads, it has to start with us. God has made you the final authority in your home. Whether that's recognized by anyone else in your home or not, God has made you the final authority. Take your place. He's not asking you to. He's not suggesting you to. He's commanding you to. You lead your home. Lead it. What if they go kicking and screaming? So be it. You lead your home in a godly manner and let the cards fall. And if that just causes turmoil, so be it. That turmoil needs to come. Stand up and be the man. God has made you the final authority in your home. He's made you the most influential voice in your home. Let me give you a few statistics just in case you doubt that, by the way. I'll close with this. These come from Barna Research, Baptist Press, Lifeway Research, Pew Research. These are not fly-by-night. These companies have done extensive research. Here's what they said. If a father does not attend worship services, even if the mother is a regular attender, only one child in 50 of that couple will ever become a regular attender. That's 2%. So, Mom, if you think the way that you're going to get your children to love Jesus is you're going to sit at home and degrade your, your husband... And talk about how silly and stupid he is. And then you're going to bring your kids. And that's how they're going to learn the faith. You're going at it backwards. Maybe your gospel efforts should be focused at him. 2% if dad doesn't go and mom does. Now let's flip-flop it and see. If you flip-flop it, if the father attends regularly but the mother doesn't go at all, between 67 and 75% of the children will be. That's saying something about the influence of a father. By the way, fatherless homes account for more than 70% of all men in uh, felony in prison. If a child is the first person in the home to be converted to Christianity, there's only a 3% chance the rest of the household will follow suit. If the mother is the first person in the home to be converted, there's a 17% chance. It's pretty good. Almost one in five. 17% chance the rest of the household will follow Guess what it is if the father's the first person? If the father is the first person in the home to be converted to Christianity, there's a 93% chance the rest of the household will follow. Dad, he has made you the head of that home. Whether you realize it, whether you recognize it or not. What the statistics show is that while moms do have spiritual influence in the home, even their influence is minor compared to dad's. That's not a knock against moms. I was raised by a single mom who drug us to church, and I'm glad that she did. But it should be a wake-up call to us as dads. What the church needs in these trying times is strong, unwavering, godly dads. We don't need any more limp-wristed, bearded women. We don't need any more little boys that will play games six hours a day. We need fathers that have a backbone and are resolute in their commitment to Christ. They're unashamed of their commitment to Christ. Hey, wait, aren't you taking this just a little too seriously? Don't you see our neighbors? They're Christians too. They're not crazy like you are. So what? They aren't answering to God for the way I lead this home. I am. 
I will stand before my creator one day and give an account of how I led my home, of how or whether I led my precious wife and my children. They won't give an account for my home. I will. We need men who are willing to do what's right rather than what's easy. Most men just want to do what's easy. And that's why they're wishy-washy, and that's why they change back and forth on their stance, and that's why they'll say one thing with one side of their mouth and one side with another, because they'll do what's easy. My grandpa had a saying he used to say over and over and over. He said, men are like water, or like, like rivers. Men are like rivers. They become crooked when they take the path of least resistance. It's easy to take the path of least resistance. I just go along, because the culture is going to give me a lot of backlash. You know what? You're right. The culture we live in is getting darker and more decayed all the time, which means if you stand up and say, I'm going to live according to the scripture, my house will be ordered according to the scripture, you're going to get backlash. You're going to be talked about. Do it anyway. We need fathers that will prepare their children to be strong, dependable, bright lights in a dark and decaying culture. The next great revival in this land must start in the home. And I'll go so far as to say, if it does not, it will not. You're not going to see another great awakening until godly men, godly fathers, stand up and take their place in the church. You're not. Instead, you're going to see what we're seeing right now. It's a great awakening. Let's do what's easy. It's it's good with the culture. The culture likes it. Let's just go along. It's easy. Oh, I'm sorry you don't have a backbone. We need men who are invested in molding their children to the standard of Scripture rather than the standard of culture. Abraham was dead set in that. He knew how important it was. And we need to be looking back to his example and saying, that is the example of our faith. It is that important. On this Father's Day, let me exhort you. Be men. Men of God. But men, just the same. Let's pray. Dear God, please make us as fathers, as resolute as Abraham. Let us fear your name. Let us walk in your path. Let us invest and be fully vested in raising our children to know and follow you, to leading our homes to know and follow you, to be disciple makers. Let us as men and fathers rise up and take our place in our homes that you've created us to occupy. God, forgive us. Grant us repentance for not doing so to this point. Forgive me. Forgive us as men for the many ways we've failed you in this monumental task. Teach us how to do it your way from here on out. Let us have the courage to walk in your path. Be gracious to our children for the sake of your covenant and for your gospel. Let us lead them to you. Let their hearts be turned to you. Let us see righteousness exalted again, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray.